0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today to speak with Dr. Megan Black about her book, The Global Interior, Mineral Frontiers and American Power. Dr. Black examines the ways that the Interior Department, usually thought of only in domestic contexts, has functioned as an arm of American empire in relation to mineral rights. In doing so, it has managed to operate outside of dichotomies of hard and soft power and often does so reinforcing ideas of American exceptionalism. Dr. Black, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about where you went to school and what led you to this project.
1: Well, hello, Zeb. Thanks for having me. I am uh, very happy to be here and part of the interview. (laughs) I went to um, George Washington University for my PhD program, and I'm from Nebraska originally. So I I feel like I've been on a trajectory where I keep moving east, even though some of the the topics that I am interested in, as you've noted in your own um, comments to me, are oriented more towards the American West. So um, I was curious about... Um, issues related to my home state and um, region and the way that sort of legacies of settler colonialism seemed to be very alive um, at the point at which I was going to university and I was um, growing more aware of that through my course of study at the University of Nebraska and I had a curiosity about that which I took to graduate school at George Washington University in DC um, and and I was sort of of this moment, as many scholars in my generation were, I think, where the war in Iraq was also playing in the background in this, um, in this way that was, um, both hyper present and, and pretty abstracted. So those were sort of general things going on in my mind when I, I went to grad school, um, with a very sort of, um, open set of questions about how these legacies of seemingly like, continentally defined um, colonialism might intersect with something like U.S. overseas activities and, uh, and wars. So, um, so eventually I found minerals as one point of intersection in a way to think about that. I really, to be honest, was not thinking about the U.S. Department of the Interior um, as the, the sort of object of my inquiry, but um but interior sort of emerged for me as an important uh player. So what happened though was I was curious about strategic minerals and at the you know urging of my um my mentors in my graduate program, we were going to the National Archives very frequently. You know, I was in DC, so it was just down the road really. Um, and I was looking at files related to extraction, um, that, you know, <laughs> the, the sort of circuitous path was that I first stumbled onto these mineral films that had been produced by the interior department and featured narratives about, you know, America's westward expansion. And that I found fascinating because the story then been also pivoted to being about sort of global, um, trajectories of mineral development in other other parts of the world and these films then the more that I learned about them um, I realized that they were circulating to places all over the world including Afghanistan and Bolivia and Brazil and this was all a part of international development so the 1950s was kind of my um, original, moment of of concern and I saw this intersection of um, US mineral pursuits between, you know, sort of on the level of narrative, the way that the story of extracting minerals began in the American frontier, whatever that is, (laughs) Um, and then um, mapped onto sort of the global plane. Um, But then also to see that the personnel involved in that process were were also shared. So the interior department then became a way to think about these uh, connections and, uh, and in very material and institutional ways. So then the project was struck. I I went off oh. to figure out where interior was exterior.
0: Okay. What did the research process look like for this?
1: The research process was... Um, wide-ranging and I would say responsive to new moments of, um, of crisis and opportunity around the department's expertise. So I initially was um, thinking about international development as the starting point of when interior personnel were making claims to um, their expertise in things like resource extraction being a justification for going into the world as a starting point but over time um I realized that I wanted to consider that as um just one of many moments where the department um perceived a threshold and passed that threshold so um so when I started writing in the 1950s the next kinds of Horizons that presented themselves were um, not obviously territorial in some ways, so things like the continental shelf or outer space as an arena of activity or this sort of resurgence of interest in um, American Indian reservations um, in the continental west as as places where interior was redirecting its um, capacities in resource extraction. And, um, eventually I pushed that back further to consider the moment in the 1930s when interior officially took on the mantle leading the division of territories and island possessions as another moment of sort of, um, a, a further, um, expansion overseas, um, which, it turned out, once I had written that chapter, like, well, actually that began earlier, but in less formalized ways with the 1898 moment. And by the point at which I was you know, finalizing the, the sort of thoughts of how I would transition the dissertation to the book, I was thinking about the the actual origins of the department as being integral to the story, um, which pushed me to consider the 19th century in, um, in sort of a, a big picture way. So this is to say that the research process was not straightforward in terms of periodization. I tried to um, just pay attention to what the annual reports were telling me about the the new trajectories that Interior was taking on and then thinking about, well, what repository of, of memoranda and, and reports and other um you know, correspondence related to these developments is available. So I got into, um, interior department files. Yes. And focusing in on things like the geological survey and Bureau of Mines or, or office of the territories. But then I also, um, would look at files related to international development and the space race and, um, and secretaries of the interior as well. So, um, So that is um, what the archival base ended up being, and it was a U.S.-based archive, but it was also approaching that archive in very different ways and reading not for um, sort of domestic activities, I'm, I'm doing air quotes that you can't see right now <laughs> i in my interview, but the domestic activities of the department that have been pretty well documented across some fields, including environmental history, Native American history, political history, and in trying to let the the moments of its um, foreign investments really come into focus. Um, and so that is how I approached these um these moments of um, expanded jurisdiction and expanded sort um, of claims to authority to, to operate in a new sphere or arena of activity.
0: So let's start with your first chapter, um, which really focuses sort of on interior at this sort of hinge moment as its identity is sort of in crisis as as the identity of the United States shifts to a certain extent. Um, what are you looking at in your first chapter?
1: In the first chapter, the closing of the interior, I look at the emergence of the department in 1849 um, in the wake of the Mexican-American War, and um, and try to consider a, a set of questions about what what was it founded in response to, um, which had been. And the 20th century documents that I found um, cited as an important part of the institutional memory. So what I mean by that is in the 1950s, as interior officials were venturing abroad in international development, they would refer to this uh, mid-19th century moment to say, you know, once it was the undeveloped West that conditioned our development. Now it's the undeveloped world of the 1950s. And they, they cited that. History with what they called the the frontier, as um, a justification for their their further extension into new um, arenas. So in that um, in this nineteenth century context, I was trying to to consider um, some of the the potential truth in those kinds of memories with. Um, a recognition that memory is fuzzy and is by no means um, um, going to uh, map onto what the, the archives produce. And I drew heavily also on secondary source scholarship for Um, reconstructing this narrative of interior's history. It's a massive sprawling entity, much like federal um, government was increasingly becoming over the 19th century. And, um, and what I found is that the congressional debates that, um, that, emerged after uh, the added expansive territory and population and resources attached to it with the war, which was about 1.2 million square miles of um, added concern. The, um, the officials or the the legislators um, saw a real need to reshuffle, um, the, the sort of apparatus for managing different parts of that. Now, um, This is to say that the Interior Department did not emerge out of nothing, but rather was a sort of reassembling of functions that had been widely dispersed across um, the Treasury Department, for example, or the War Department. And and the fact that these capacities, for example, the General Land Office or um, the Indian Affairs Office had been... Existing and separate from each other, sort of um, called attention to the fact that the federal government was dealing with activities that people were increasingly defining as domestic activities, which ran contrary to much wisdom about the nature of federal government in the 19th century. Um, Federal government was much more associated with. the foreign and with sort of a, a trust instilled on states to tend to domestic affairs. But the, in practice, that was not what was happening uniformly. And the interior department then just became a repository for these different kernels of um, government power that, and to say kernels suggest that they were very small when many of these were actually large parts of the functioning of government. Um, but they were brought together under one banner, the Department of the Interior, and it was meant to signal this sort of congealing of um, of a domestic space, a domestic entity, um, or sort of, as you hinted in your question, a, a sort of new self-identification of the nation as in, um, an expanse that, that ran from sea to shining sea. So in some ways, it seemed to manifest the destiny that had been foretold um, in the 1840s as part of um, America's uh, expansion in the war. And I then sort of move from that moment and skim stones over a, a wide swath of history um, to think about some of the developments and transformations in the Interior Department's activities, which Um, covered a a wide range but largely fell along two major axes one being population management um, specifically oriented to indigenous peoples and the other being resource management um, which over time increasingly became attached to minerals more so than other kinds of resources for example biological resources that would be spun out and um, and given to the new department of agriculture as a, an activity or um, an arena of concern. So many things happen over the 19th century, which of course is um, an understatement, but what I try to, to focus on in the way that interior responds to transformations um, in this same time period is the idea that this Part of the American government that had been called forth to manage um, and oversee the process of incorporating territory seemed to reach a a perceived problem with uh, the claims made at the end of the 19th century that the that the territory had been effectively incorporated. Now, um, many historians would point out that the the West was never, um, fully settled, that the frontier never closed like Frederick Jackson Turner thought. Um, but interior did in this moment, nevertheless, identify, um, uh, certain problems, um, with the way that it had disposed of uh, land and resources in the process of, of settling the West. And this meant that, um, there was a real need to diversify the kinds of activities that it superintended. Now, conservation is one of those key sort of adaptations that departmental leaders made in the face of critics like um, Gifford Pinchot, who's a pretty well-known person in in this history as the leader of the uh, the Forest Service and a conservationist that was deeply critical of interiors uh, practices and um, and so, um, in and through this kind of set of debates, the interior department really ceded important terrain to the Department of Agriculture over things like the forests, again, being left with mineral resources and, and water resources as part of its um, as its uh, jurisdiction, and also um, finding ways that it's um, skill set tied to. Um, expansion westward expansion was needed in the new imperial context the overseas imperial context in which um, the united states uh, pursued territorial holdings in the pacific and caribbean so um, at this same kind of moment interior geologists and other bureaucrats are um, venturing into the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Cuba to conduct mineral surveys, much as they had across the continental West. So that is one moment that suggests that the interior department was not going to to close, was not going to be closed, even though there were pressures to do that. Right. (laughs) It would continue to have usefulness, but it would require a kind of responsiveness to different um, national needs. And that is something that has helped me to understand why and how a seemingly insular arm of the government would also be oriented so consistently um, to these um, new thresholds of American power.
0: which it encounters in your second and third chapters. The second one is interesting. I mean, it it runs through some of those um, familiar sort of imperial sites one would expect in this period, Philippines, Cuba, but Alaska is also a really prominent player, which of course makes sense because Alaska has this tremendous mining history. You bring up Kennecott. Um, How are they casting themselves now that they have this new area of oversight that's sort of safeguarding interior as a bureaucratic institution?
1: Right. Well, the ascent to a lead role in the Division of Territories and Island Possessions in the New Deal um, provides many opportunities for the department, um, and. It's something that I, I definitely understand as being connected to the the distinct charisma of Harold Ickes as a as an official as well, um, someone who sort of bombastically presumed that the Interior Department, in the wake of the Teapot Dome scandal, which had really delegitimized its um, its ability to benevolently superintend national. Um, resources like the uh, naval oil deposits in Wyoming, that, and in fact, Interior had so much to contribute to the national well being. Um, territories allowed an, an arena of jurisdiction that was um, sort of informally in place. So, as mentioned, since 1898, Interior had an important presence, one that I don't go into, um, um, but gesture to in the book. And with, um, with this 1930s moment, Interior takes over from the Navy and Army, um, which had been effectively running this show. And the way that I make sense of this and that the sources seem to make sense of this is to show a real need on behalf of the American government to portray their form of imperialism in a very benevolent light. So the Interior Department is consciously a civilian organization, um, as it had been in the 19th century when it sort of subsumed roles that the War Department had overseen previously. And that um, this in turn accorded more with um, the, the claims of the United States to be on a path toward, for example, liberating the Philippines um, in, in accordance with Um, these principles of self-determination to which the nation was increasingly committed, um, especially with the onset of global war at the, um, at the sort of end of that chapter. So um, on the one hand, the the role interior plays in the territories is one of presenting a softer side of us imperialism, one that is more um, technical and neutral and, um, and sort of a predecessor in my mind to things like international development programs, then it is martial or, um, overtly coercive. And, um, and at the same time, the pressures of war also create a desire among us officials to access certain strategic minerals that are by definition, um, minerals that the U S has in short supply. And this is also the moment when interior officials helped to author and create the category of strategic minerals, which um, had not quite existed in this form until, uh, legislation that was based on, um, sort of official input from different agencies of the government helped to create it. So the, the interior department, um, begins seeking, uh, strategic resources in its territories but this is also a moment where mineral extraction in a context of imperialism is increasingly s- triggering certain kinds of alarms raising alarms about exploitation and and bad kinds of imperialism which <laughs> um, the the US officials were quick to suggest there there are good and bad forms FDR was Someone who also was trying to position American imperialism in that way. So there's there are many people who have a stake in in distancing U.S. empire from something like King Leopold's empire in Belgium and or in Belgian Congo, and um, and this um, this sort of particular nexus of like a, a highly racialized form of exploitation that then facilitates raw materials for distant um, coffers, like in the the colonial context. All of these things are sort of on the table as the U.S. intensifies resource surveys and extraction in those territories. And throughout, I see things like, you know, this, um, this... vision of a benevolent and technically neutral superintendent of resources emerging as a key strategy for how to square that circle for how to continue to undertake activities that one might associate with um, the most regrettable forms of imperialism um, but that uh, also allow it to be perceived in a different light. And this is something that I definitely see um, at play and further in the worlds in the next two chapters and that cover you know, the Second World War and then the post-war years.
0: And it's interesting to see in that third chapter, the extent to which interior um, sort of fits within this good neighbor policy that Franklin Delano Roosevelt articulates and, and tries to put into action. How does that play out in terms of interior?
1: Right. Well, I think that the good neighbor policy in many ways um, presented a, a challenge similar to the one in the previous chapter about putting forward a benevolent image of American power or the good neighbor policy in this very framing is also claiming a, a benevolent set of relations that is overtly meant to depart from previous exploitative arrangements. So the emphasis is on reciprocity and um, fair dealing. And within that, um, there is an unavoidable history of resource extraction at stake because in the prior um, Spanish colonial context and in more recent sort of um, corporate led extractive endeavors um, in Latin America, there were highly unequal arrangements that in turn galvanized um, labor movements and, and sorts of challenges that the good neighbor policy is responding to among other, you know, um, reconfigurations of, of, um, global order in that moment. So, um, so as the sort of threat of war increases over the, the course of the 1930s, um, the geologists are, uh, among those concerned about, um, the potential of war. And the, the chapter looks at this Pan-American scientific con- that happened in 1941 and um, brought together some of those concerned geologists who um, who expressed a real desire to um, to think in hemispheric terms about resources. So rather than there being U.S. resources and uh, Mexican resources or, or any kind of national configuration, we should think of these as a, a collective set of resources that are necessary <coughs> for mounting a defense against <clears throat> Nazi Germany and um, and other you know potential threats. So, um, so once again, there is a desire to extract resources that are associated with imperialism, but to do it in a way that seems to preserve um, warm neighborly relations in the hemisphere and cooperative mineral. Programs become the the sort of um, mechanism by which that can happen. So the um, the interior department enlist geologists who would in turn work under state department run programs of exchange, like knowledge exchange, and share their sorts of their experts um, with different Latin American republics. And in the process, these geologists and mineral experts are, um, are creating a a sort of knowledge base about what minerals exist in these resource rich countries. Um, So I look at one geologist, Eugene Callahan, who had been sent to Bolivia examine the tin situation, even though his reports, unlike the rest of the reports that um I looked at are were um were confidential and were withheld um and uh and so I had to find those in his personal papers in Utah actually. But um but these sort of reveal um a set of interests and understanding the infrastructure of a place, the labor arrangements of a place alongside the mineral resources of a place. And in order to optimize the access of allied powers, um, in the war context to these resources, the geologists on the ground also start making claims about transformations that are needed to infrastructure and, um, transportation ports, um, and new sort of ways of mechanizing labor, which in turn become a part of post-war aid programs and development agendas. We need to transform societies. So claim modernizers, um, for a variety of, um, of economic and security reasons and on a global scale. So, um, the the strategic mineral programs have this way of emerging in a in an emergency a wartime context, but becoming um, but revealing themselves to be <coughs> so lucrative, and I try to show the kinds of spikes in um, in the production of different commodities like mica or. Um, <coughs> Chromium and and other uh, minerals that are used in the production of steel and the the um implements of war. So um mica being used for electronics and switchboards that were also vital to the war effort. Um but what happens, what begins as sort of a, a response to emergencies also becomes a very economically um promising set of opportunities. And um, and this then carries forward into international development where the focus will be on, um, you know, opening up lines uh, in foreign nations to strategic minerals, but also in creating conditions favorable to capitalism as part of um, a sort of um, a post-war era that is as wrapped up with concerns about economic prosperity as it is national security in a Cold War context.
0: And your next chapter leads into that. Um, it also leads into these these issues around modernization. You're starting to, to deal with the 0.4 program. It starts to come up here. We're starting to see what looks like more familiar development. So how is the United States approaching this in, that cold, in the early Cold War era? In the early
1: Cold War, the United States has been asking a set of questions about um, its own moral leadership, which is an important framing for for how they then go about acquiring strategic minerals through international development. Um, the, uh, The strategic mineral needs are also um, being perceived to be rather great in this moment because of reports that are emerging from the Interior Department and from other ad hoc agencies like the President's Materials Policy Commission or the Paley Commission, which brought together a set of industrialists to sort of assess the big picture mineral situation in the United States. But that came out in 1952. There are predecessor reports that all kind of point to this idea that the United States is on course to run out of vital minerals. Um, and there is a, a real concern about resource scarcity. Now, whether the, these are perceptions and I want to emphasize and underline that the projections that were drawn up by these experts were far from, um, being, uh, a, a born out <laughs> over time. And, um, and that I think is, is an important point when we talk about Materials they, they can seem like um, very real entities, but interpreting their um, existence uh, is also very relative and, and subjective. So, this is um, this is not something that um, was apparent in the moment, and um, many Americans expressed concerns about uh, the, the sort of access to resources in relation to in. Increasing set of hostilities with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Now, as part of other foreign aid programs, um, like the Marshall Plan, um, U.S. officials and interior officials had debated whether it was a morally acceptable thing to expect in return for those funds that the United States provided for post war recovery, um, whether access to minerals would be something that could be wrapped up in those programs. And in that instance, they tellingly decided it was not morally acceptable to do that because it would resound of manipulation. However, um, in the ensuing years, um, officials tunes changed or rather a different set of officials did not express the same concerns about enfolding into the 0.4 program that um, developed from Harry Truman's, 1949 inaugural address um that mineral programs would be ideally situated and nestled nestled under that um uh, set of programs that targeted not europe or um other former um or japan but instead um nations across the um, third world and um and so, this um, this willingness to pursue strategic minerals through international development was attached to the idea that they helped to um, that international development would actually help to legitimize these strategic mineral efforts. So, um, Henry Bennett, who is the um, the original directors of the point four program, wrote to um, other officials interested in this topic to say that, you know, I actually think point four would be an excellent arena in which to get strategic minerals and it would allow it to happen in ways that would, um, would be less offensive to, um, foreign nations or they might be more willing collaborators in the process. So this, um, this sort of connection between, um, the technical assistance programs and these, um, mineral objectives is one that um, in the eyes of officials helped to smooth the process overall. And I think that that's something I was really struck by, that interior officials who took on posts in Afghanistan or Iran or um, or Mexico or um, Brazil were on some level granted access, um, along with the U S funds that had been accepted as part of the point four agreements by the, the governments of, of these nations and that they could, you know, hop in their Jeeps or get on the, the bros with their teams and, um, and move across the country to survey for resources. And, um, we're in a position to make recommendations for how to modernize equipment and, um, that these activities were sort of framed in such a way uh, in in the lens of technical neutrality that allowed them to unfold. um, Even as there were growing critiques that the presence of outsiders in foreign nations um, resonated with exploitation. Uh, So one example is um, the, the, um, the case in Iran, where um, interior officials are actively involved in international development, and they are collaborating with Mohammad Mossadegh um, on programs that seem to have nothing to do with minerals. Um, so, like locusts and um, and certain like livestock and animal husbandry programs, which are also very much associated, or more generally associated with international development, but that the leader was um, sort of appropriately concerned about the interests of U.S. officials in developing oil in the wake of the nationalization and um, the sort of protest of the Anglo-American um, sort of influence in, um, in the Iranian petroleum industry. Yet after the coup in 1953, uh, programs for uh, resource extraction are um, actually... Um, growing and the interior official in charge of the Point Four program, a guy named William Warren, claimed that he was a central figure in in reorganizing the petroleum industry. What would become British Petroleum there? Now, you know his his role is um, is just one in a much larger drama um, in a multinational effort. But I think that it sort of betrays this this way that, um, across the world, interior officials like others in the technical assistance apparatus were able to operate a little bit more inconspicuously and with the support and cooperation of foreign governments. And, um, and that this did seem to help be a salve in and through those, um, relations, even though certain cases like the one in Iran, um, for a variety of reasons, did not go smoothly. And um, and I'm not suggesting that point four is the central part of that story, but it is a part of that story um, that helps us to bring together stories of international development with stories of Cold War resource scrambles, which are, you know, two points of concern in the field of diplomatic history that often tend to be read separately from each other. Um, But I do think there are situations where it's important to think about their intersection and what we might perceive as as a contradictory intersection, precisely because um, the Technical Cooperation Administration itself um, had outlined certain criteria for 0.4 Point four programs and mineral programs increasingly were understood to not conform to those criteria in the sense that mineral programs did not prove to yield long-term benefit for the nations that accepted funds for mineral development for a variety of reasons, especially those stemming from the capital-intensive nature of the undertaking and the constant need to turn to outside investors to spur on those industries, which then created a cycle of um, asymmetrical operations. Even so, even with this acknowledgement from the the TCA that these programs weren't helping and from interior officials that they weren't helping long term sort of self-help in keeping with international development, the officials concluded that the strategic value in relation to the Cold War was such that they should continue. And there we see a real um, point of connection between these two important uh, stories of American power in the post-war era.
0: Now, your next chapter has to do with the continental shelf and ocean specifically. Um, what's the significance of the continental shelf to interior?
1: The continental shelf as, um, as an entity is, um, is one that I find kind of hard to wrap my mind around. And I imagine that interior officials themselves did, too, when they first were contemplating what it would mean to bring it under their jurisdiction, but um, the continental shelf is like this moving target and constantly shifting um, in terms of its shape and the, the boundaries that are drawn around it. But it, it represents the submerged lands um, off the coast of the continental or territorial United States that in 1945 and 1946, the United States laid explicit claim to. Now, there had been prior precedent um, that states controlled the the sort of offshore potential within like a three-mile um, distance from shore. And there had already been submerged um, drilling activities, for example, but obviously also issues related to fishing and, and commerce. Um, but Harold Dickies, um, as Secretary of the Interior, in uh, he's leaving at this point in 1945, had been pretty fixated on trying to bring the continental shelf explicitly into um, the United States authority and in a larger way so that um, resources like oil could be extracted from it. Now, Ickes was thinking about this during the Second World War. There were many things going on, so it was hard to, to sort of move forward on that. But, um, but it had seemed pretty straightforward to leaders like Franklin D. Roosevelt um, that this was a good idea, even though um, Harry Truman would be the one to sign the formal proclamation that would uh, bring it under U.S. jurisdiction. And um, the, the Continental Shelf then allowed um, agencies within Interior, like the Geological Survey, the Bureau of Mines, the Bureau of Land Management, which had come to subsume the the activities at the general land office to continue activities that they had done for a long time, which was to say parceling land, um, surveying land and finding ways to utilize land. And the trick was that it was now just underwater. And, um, Hmm. and this opened up a set of opportunities that would continue to link the interior department and private industry. And I should also say that, um, Harold Dickies at the moment that this was claimed was clear that he viewed this as one of the nation's significant expansions, but it's one that um, audiences then and critics since have sort of struggled to conceive of as an extension of us power as an expansion, um, precisely because it's an unpeopled one or seemingly unpeopled. And, um, Mm -hmm. and the, the story that, um, I pick up on is sort of how the shelf sort of lies, um, awaiting use as, as interior officials like to think of it as an untapped resource, um, that becomes more fully realized in the 1960s for a variety of reasons. Um, and these actually are are not separate from what happened in the previous chapters of the book, which is to say that as um, as U.S. officials continue to face friction and, um, in many cases, an intensification of resistance among third world leaders about the um, about the ability to extract resources from those nations, um, there is a greater desire to consider resources quote, closer to home. And the continental shelf is considered now to be part of the home, the enlarged home. And um, it becomes an object of increasing attention so that um, from 1961 to 1967, the the drilling on the shelf, um, it, uh, it, it increases dramatically. And the, um, the chapter also is trying to think about those connections then through the figure of Stuart Udall, who as the sort of charismatic secretary of the interior under, um, president John F. Kennedy and later president Lyndon B. Johnson would, um, would have an increasingly global role, um, that would sort of culminate in his participation in the leasing of the offshore shelf. So the, um, the, the lands that would then be drilled um, by corporations. And this is something that culminated in 1969 in the Santa Barbara oil spill. <clears throat> but Udall is someone um, who, as I show, was counterintuitively, perhaps, in in places like um, Latin America and the Middle East and seeing Sort of um, changing dynamics in those places that um, that convinced him of the importance of looking at the shelf. So, for example, I, I detail this um, this uh, trip that Udall made to uh, Saudi Arabia in 1967, and how he observed that um, that conditions were. Um, were deteriorating. And he reported this back to, to Lyndon B. Johnson and Secretary of State Dean Rusk, um, as the sort of, um, um, local resistance to the operations of, um, oil companies like Aramco um, were were making it more difficult to to feel assured of US access to Saudi Arabian oil. And this is in the sort of tense moments before the Arab-Israeli war. So Udall comes back from this trip where he had chatted with King Faisal and and had toured Aramco oil operations and US geological survey um, offices in the region and um, expressed renewed commitment to um, harnessing the oil potential of the continental shelf. So um, I I try to to trace those connections and also to think about how um, one thread we haven't talked so much about the book, but which I think is particularly important, is the way that nature and ideas about the environment um, consistently helped to justify the further projection of um, American power and certainly the, the further dissemination of interior officials into the world. So the claim that you know natural resources know no boundaries, therefore the experts that tend to national natural resources should also know no boundaries, which is to say they should also cross borders to tend to them is one that had developed, in the international development context. And by the point at which the um, the resources um, beneath the oceans are being tapped, there is an even um, more ecological kind of repertoire that's trying to make claims about um, resources not belonging strictly to one nation, but being a sort of um, a part of a, a global commons. and um, And that sort of, helps to to justify these circuits that, that someone like Stuart Udall is going on. um, But also became wrapped up in a set of questions about developing, not just the continental shelf that clearly belonged to the United States, but the deep ocean floor, which, um, which is like outer space meant to be an international zone that belongs to everyone um, that shouldn't be monopolized by any one um, nation. So it's kind of a trippy. It's a trippy thing <laughs> so, to mm-hmm. think about those those sort of different arenas and the way that U.S. sovereignty um, was extended into that plane, but that also doing so threatened to upset a global order that was um, pretty committed to uh, an era of self determination and an end to the kinds of expansionism that had seemed to to get um, everyone enmeshed in the Second World War um, and uh, helped to establish the international order um, that the United Nations was representative of. Now,
0: you've alluded to your chapter on space, and I, I think it's, it's a marvelous chapter in no small part because it's so paradoxical to have the Department of the Interior considering a, a space that is forget about interior to the United States isn't really even interior to planet earth. So how do, how do they approach that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh my. Well, I think that is an excellent question. And certainly that paradox is one that really um, frustrated me and challenged me in the course of my research and writing Um, on some level, the interior department continued to see opportunities in claiming to to be able to marshal a certain expertise related to natural resources that could be applied in a new context. And, um, and Stuart Udall, once again, is central to this story, but so too is his geological survey director, a guy named William Pecora, who incidentally had spearheaded the Latin American cooperative programs in the decades before and had seen how interior um, could enter into these other zones and offer, um, you know, the technical assistance while also preserving, um, American access to those resources. So the journey into space on some level presented the interior department with this sense of another symbolic frontier that, um, reminded many of previous frontiers and Stuart Udall would make reference to this, this longer history of, um, of the interior department's role in leading the charge into um, new arenas of activity, um, he uses the metaphor of climbing a mountain as, as one example of how um, how we might think of u- utilizing this um, new arena. But I should say that initially, the um, the set of ideas about Outer space and and interiors involvement therein were attached to identifying resources in outer space. So um, interior geologists are were helping NASA in um, anticipating what the lunar environment would be like so that astronauts could land on the moon. And they were asking questions about like, well, what does the moon have, you know, and how could we make use of it? So the Interior Department's Bureau of Mines set about investigating lunar mining techniques that did not appear to get very far and on some levels served more as a public relations nugget as the um, space bureaucracy, as NASA continued to face um, budgetary questions about, um, how they were justifying their $5 billion allocation, um, in, um, in their pursuit of seemingly abstract goals, like landing a man on the moon, how would that in turn benefit the national economy? Well, um, interior and like mineral resources more broadly, um, were receiving, um, OK, so I should say the Interior Department and other U.S. officials saw in mineral resources a way to respond to that question. Well, space, we don't know everything about it, but it surely has a lot of minerals, you know, and um, a lot of mineral bodies. And um, and so there were sort of loose estimates about how that might translate to benefit on Earth. The fact of that sort of set of investments was that it didn't so much um Uh, generate a great deal of interest or attention in celestial resources or extraterrestrial resources, as it did create a a set of excitements about the vantage point of outer space and how it could be um, harnessed and redirected towards the earth and intensify American capacities to see the earth and its mineral potential in particular. So, this is the story behind the Landsat satellite, which still operates today um, and was the sort of brainchild of geologists in NASA, but was quickly also taken up as a, um, a sort of um, show pony for the interior department, as Stuart Udall and his um, director of the Geological Survey, William Pecora, um, adopted the satellite as a a technology that could be used in um, mineral development and especially mineral development across borders Um, as geologists in places like Minas Gerais in Brazil were calling for um, technologies that could help prospect um, resources in, in remote areas and areas that infrastructure had not yet allowed technicians on the ground to access. So the journey into space has this odd boomerang effect of intensifying U.S. capacities to um, identify and extract resources on the planet, and this is um, something that quickly was linked to the international development apparatus. So that U.S. geologists are then helping foreign foreign nations receiving aid from the United States in um, in using the satellite images that were freely available for a small fee to direct. Uh, resource development and this is the story about or the story behind um the identification of um oil reserves in sudan um in the sense that chevron purchased landsat images that helped them to identify um a a reserve of oil that would um, attract um much attention and um and would be um imagined as a potential solution to the um, energy crises of the 1970s. So the satellite became this kind of um, canvas onto which certain (laughs) fantasies were projected um, so that the United States could find sources of oil, not in OPEC nations. Um, And that, um, that doing so would also mean that you could, United States could conserve valuable resources at home while um, having decidedly not conservationist approaches to land and resources overseas, which uh, is a moment where the mm-hmm. ongoing environmentalist rhetoric of the department and the claims of Stuart Udall and others that the satellite would work to allow for natural resource planning, yes, but also environmental stewardship, a, a, a vision of the earth as a, a holistic unit um, that could be applied to to protect the planet and take care of it. And of course this is also the moment of Earthrise and a, a growing sort of um environmental movement that is um invested in precisely that kind of global vision for um for the the benefit of all. So the chapter covers a lot of ground, both um, you know, earthly and otherwise. But I, I found what really fascinated me was the consistency too that the chapter marked um, with previous attempts on behalf of interior officials to transfer a skill set in um, in a new and perhaps seemingly uncharted terrain, um, though. The idea that um, the previous terrains had been uncharted, um, of course, was tied to a settler colonial logic that erased the, the prior existence of, of indigenous and other peoples in, uh, in those regions.
0: And that's the perfect lead-in to your final chapter, which we're coming up close on the end of our hour here. But I wonder if you could just talk briefly. You know, it, everything's, everything ultimately comes back to indigenous rights in your final chapter, specifically around mining in the United States. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, the same energy crisis that animates um, certain desires about the Landsat satellite um, becomes um, – important to driving us officials and global energy firms back to certain parts of the American West that um, are hardly easy to define as part of the American West because they were indigenous reservations. So places like Navajo nation or the Laguna Pueblo reservation were revealed in the um, wake of the energy crisis to have incredible amounts of um, other sources of um, Energy and fuel. So, um, it, at one point, it was estimated that Indigenous lands had 50% of the nation's uranium, um, 30% of its low sulfur strippable coal, and um, 2% of its oil shale and natural gas. Now, those figures ended up being wrong, um, though it was still an impressive portion, and um, and Indigenous peoples having, you know, just been through an, a vibrant uh, indigenous sovereignty movement were, um, were prepared to really, uh, mobilize a, a wide set of strategies to defend reservations from a new set of encroachments, um, that resembled, or they feared could resemble that of the 19th century and, um, and the termination eras that happened in um, the 20th century as well. So the, um, the strategy that I focus on is, um, one mobilized by a coalition called the Council of Energy Resource Tribes that, um, rather cheekily called itself the Indian OPEC and did so, um, in ways to, to draw certain symbolic, um, solidarities with the organization of petroleum exporting countries that had, um, similarly stood up for their resource sovereignty, um, but also to grab attention. And so this final chapter becomes an opportunity to shift perspective a bit from the interior department and interior officials to thinking about a social movement that challenged it directly. And specifically to think about this kind of imaginary that was created in which um, these, the, the, Native Americans, like Navajo um, tribal chairman Peter McDonald, claimed that Native Americans had so much in common with OPEC and third world nations that had been exploited for their resources. And McDonald even made a claim that the the moon and um, uh, the Navajo ancestors that came from the moon might have a, a sort of stake in this story as well, which is sort of the, an anecdote that I opened the chapter with and is, um, is a, a pretty intriguing sort of mapping on behalf of, of a person who um, occupies a pretty ambivalent position in, um, in history of native American activism in part, because McDonald's vision for how to um, resist Um, the the sort of forces of the American state and corporation was to embrace capitalism and to um, embrace energy development, but to do so on more equitable terms. Now, this was and remained controversial um, because um, some in the indigenous communities were calling for a very different set of tactics, um, including a preservation of traditional ways, um, whether livestock raising or or other kinds of economic activity that would be bound up with the same land that was being proposed as a coal mine or a uranium mine. So there was a a great deal of internal debate, um, but I was particularly interested in the claims that this Indian OPEC um, sort of labeling made about the, um, the trajectory of American expansionism as one that connected uh, American Indian experience to the experience of people in third world nations, but also the claim that part of the tactics of the American state in dispossessing indigenous peoples of their land was to um to have a certain um, advantage and knowledge about that land and its resource potential. So this gets um, this is something that became clear to me as I saw the, Um, Council of Energy Resource Tribes calling for technical assistance from OPEC. Now, technical assistance is precisely what the United States claimed to offer to um, to nations across uh, the Global South in international development and continue to do through the Landsat programs. But increasingly, there was a critique um, shared by some member nations of the Group of 77 in the United Nations and others that information about resources was as important as having resources themselves. And with information about resources being in the wrong hands, that would create problems. So OPEC or that the Indian OPEC turned not to the American government for technical assistance in getting information about their resources, um, but rather to OPEC in this instance. Now, they would also rely on the U S geological survey and, um, would still be kind of left to the whims of, you know, the corporations that had their own geologists who could be, you know, um, aware of what kind of resource potential existed. But those, those kinds of critiques both get at this, this, um, sort of suggestion that the interior department was not a, a, benevolent um, manager of their affairs. And this alongside the idea that Interior was failing to manage other kinds of land issues, whether um, the environmental um, issues stemming from the Santa Barbara oil spill, which in the wake of that event, the Environmental Protection Agency was created to subsume key functions that the Interior Department had had. So then in the wake of the energy crisis, the Interior Department no longer seemed like the proper um, manager of America's important energy resources; hence, the Department of Energy was created. So, social movements come to unravel um, or critique Interior. Um, there's a broader critique of its uh, of its ability to manage natural resources, and this sort of culminates in um, in a. The ascent of the Reagan administration, which further works to sort of defang the interior department and disassemble important parts of its functioning um, with an agenda to sort of root out the regulatory capacities um, in particular. And this is where we we get the. Interior Secretary James Watt, who was staunchly anti-government and effectively sought to like raise the Interior Department from within on his crusade to advance private interests and especially the interests of extractive companies. And this sort of um, process helped to um, set up a new trajectory by which the Interior Department was not, in my view, the, the sort of central operator um, in pursuing America's minerals overseas, but rather the Department of Defense, which is where a lot of funding was redirected in and through the, the Reagan era. Um, so that that is where I end up at the end of the, the chapter about um, reservations and their part in the story and, um, and the Interior Department's expansionist trajectory. Wonderful.
0: Now I've kept you for long enough, but I have to ask just one question. And since this project is <laughs> yeah, sure, just, yes. you know, I, I'm not even sure it's actually been published yet. Um, what are you thinking of working on next?
1: <laughs> I know I don't have a copy. <laughs> um, well, that, that is a big question, but um, it's, it's kind of appropriate where we ended up in talking about the social movement and this sort of transnational indigenous imaginary. Because while doing research on that topic, I saw a competing transnationalism, one that was um, not the Indian OPEC, but a part of an indigenous solidarity movement that was critical of things like resource extraction and was mobilizing the category of human rights um, to to sort of um, push back against legacies of colonial exploitation. So the new project is hoping to, to shift focus then to these social movements and to look at different you know, ways that those um, transnational connections took shape. So American Indian activists looking at Maori rights activists in New Zealand or Aboriginal activists in Australia and First Nations activists in Canada, who are, you know, as we, we know, based on the 2007 Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, working together across the world to, um, to create a space and to create a, a category that can help address the specific um, issues that Indigenous people faced historically um, within the broader conversation about human rights. And um, what I've seen so far, based on some preliminary archival work um, across some of these settler states is that um, that material relations and environments are themselves very important to, um, to the way that uh, these indigenous activist networks were imagining human rights, whereas human rights, as we know, um, often is also about these more abstract categories of political and, and civil inclusion. So the new... The new work will will try to to trace a history of this movement that sees some of these more material and environmental threads, um, and pulls at them, and and we'll see what happens when uh, when that process is underway more fully.
0: That's a, it's a fantastic project idea. Actually, I was struck by the extent to which it's almost such a perfect volume to, to what you first written.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Thank you, Zeb. I feel like I need all the encouragement I can get at, you know, the stage where it's fresh and new and exciting, but also, uh, it's a reminder that the last project took a long time and it will take a long time before I'm in a position to like, you know, um, make that volume to a reality.
0: <laughs> it's certainly not a small project. It's very transnational in scope but I, I, I wish you luck with it. I hope you go through with it. Thank you for yes, taking
1: Thank you so.
0: Yeah thank you for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Yes, thank you for your forbearance and for reaching out. It was a real pleasure to to chat.